to AIJ Cast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. On this episode, part two of our conversation with Dr. Daniel Omotocho Black. Dr. Black is a scholar and professor of African American studies, a church musician, and an award winning novelist. Dr. Black spoke with us from his home in Atlanta. We pick up our conversation speaking more about the Middle Passage and his novel, The Coming. What does reckoning look like for white folk in talking about the Middle Passage? What does it look like? I think reckoning for me, for me, in America, period, right, really looks like what it would mean for a society, for this society, to set up structures and systems that do its best to assure the safe elevation, the safe evolution of all children in this country. Mm. This means things like overhauling a criminal justice system, but doing it for real, like for real. Right. We know, of course, the inequities in the criminal justice system. We know that. Everybody's read about that. We got that. The problem is we cannot seem to fix it. Um, I looked at Ava DuVernay's When They See Us. Did you watch that? It's the story of the Central Park Five. And, of course, our current president has a role in that story as well. That's right. That's right. It's, yeah, it's the story of the Central Park Five and how they were railroaded into carrying the rape charge of this white woman in Central Park, though none of them had anything to do with it whatsoever. So see, for me, the horror is not just pinning it on the boys. That has been done before. The horror is that there's a whole culture that was willing and waiting to believe it. That's the real horror. How easy it was to sell that narrative. But see, the only way one could sell that narrative that easily is because we had a public that already believed the precepts of it. Right, right. Black boys are recalcitrant. Black boys are unruly. Black boys love sex. Black boys love white women. See, you have to have all those variables in place already in order to sell that narrative. You've got the fertile soil for the seeds, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so for me, some of the reckoning has to do with um, trying to equalize the opportunities we give kids in America. Mm. But I think that really is second. The thing I think that must happen first that has never happened in this country. And that is America facing and admitting its own racial history. Mm. See, that sounds simple, but it's very hard and it has never happened. Right. I do not mean saying to Native Americans, um, we're sorry for the trail of tears. I do not mean that. No, I do not mean that. I mean... I mean, literally reckoning with Native Americans such that there is land, there may be entire states set aside in the Midwest that are given to Native Americans. That's what I mean. Mm. Mm. That's reckoning. Reckoning is not simply an apology. See, an apology is simply an announcement. Reckoning is a transition. What new will you do? What sacrifice will you make to equalize the wrong you did. You can't just apologize for slavery. You can't apologize for holding somebody in prison for 400 years. What? An apology is meaningless in that. No. There must be a reconstruction somewhere mm. of something. Mm. You know, even if even if the nation did a be very beautiful thing like to fully endow all the nation's black colleges. Mm-hmm because mm -hmm. most of them are struggling and fledgling because most people just don't believe in black higher education like that. Mm. Um Harvard, Stanford, these others have billions and billions of dollars of endowments while most black colleges are struggling with a few million. But the work 
And the fruit of what comes out of black colleges has been so unbelievably enormous. You have W.B. Du Bois from Fisk. You have King from, you know, Morehouse. You have Marva Collins from Clark College. Yeah, cultural icon Spike Lee. Oh, my God. Absolutely. In fact, before, quite frankly, the 60s or 70s, if anybody black did anything intellectually moving in America, more than likely the seed was planted at a black college. So those institutions deserve to be endowed as mainstay institutions in America. That's a good word. It also strikes me, and I'm going to bring some Bible in here, the the parallel is faith without works is dead. Absolutely. You can say you believe in something. You can apologize for something, but you need to back it up with some kind of action. Absolutely. That's going to have actual. And that, to me, is the fine line between justice and equity. Absolutely. To me, justice starts with the assumption that we're already on the same starting line. Yes. Equity recognizes that there are folk who are already halfway down the track some folk who don't even have shoes. Right. And tries to make that right before we even start the race. Right. Would you read an excerpt from The Coming for us? Certainly. The Coming. We didn't know we wouldn't return. We simply believed some terrible calamity had befallen us, that our gods had let tragedy come because we had not honored them. But we were wrong. In the end, we strengthened our own captors. We cannot claim naivete. We cannot say we were people undeveloped. We cannot say there were no signs. We can say only that we did not heed them. Sound wisdom was as common to us as the evening breeze. We scoffed and shrugged at elders forewarning of a time of great tragedy and chaos. We did not believe them. We had learned to ignore our own gods, to take their goodness for granted, to believe that because of them, we were immune to external attack. So we did not hear them. We heard only what we sought to hear. But now we hear it all echoing in our regretful memories. If only we could have seen into the future, we might have avoided the onslaught. Most of us had no such powers. The few who did, the seers and sages, we dismissed. They were always speaking of things to come, warning of impending disasters that rarely came to pass, at least in our lifetime. But now we know that prophecies come to one generation, but materialize in the next. If only we had listened, if only we had had more disciplined ears, but we did not. And so we blamed ourselves, we blamed our gods, we blamed each other. But there was no one to blame, only shame to bear. And pity, great pity, that people so strong missed so many clues. The forest whispered it, the birds chirped it, the trees waved it, the antelope danced it, the tall grass swayed it, the elders roared it. The elders said it over and over, beware, seek not the thing you do not need. Greed destroys wisdom. Let just enough be enough. But we were too blessed. Our mothers had worked so hard we didn't have to. Our fathers had killed enough game that their sons hardly knew the hunt. We didn't know then what we know now. A life of leisure destroys a child. When there's nothing to work for, there's nothing to gain, nothing to die for. So we had to die that we might live again. Mm. 
I, one other novel I want to touch on, which seems to me an important one to touch on in the midst of this current time of COVID-19, coronavirus, is your most recent novel, Listen to the Lambs. Tell us about that story. Okay. Listen to the Lambs is the story of five homeless people on the streets of Atlanta who stumble upon, literally in many instances, find each other. And these five homeless people create a life, a living, a family Though they have no materiality, they live under a bridge together. They they have various roles um, that they love. They fight. They argue. They make up like any family does. The, uh, the beauty, I think, and the magic of that story is that they create the thing that seemingly life or the world suggested none of them should have. Through their own agency, they create community. Mm. What inspired that story? I saw a man, uh, this is years ago, I forget where I was, but I saw a man, and he was obviously homeless, and I heard him singing. And I heard him singing this song, which I knew well as a person from the church, and his voice was just so beautiful. Mm. It was just angelic. And I looked around trying to find the source of this voice, and I looked over and realized it was this homeless man singing, right? And... I was, and, I, and I stared at him and he stared directly into my eyes and he was singing this um, amazing grace shall always be my song of praise. And I'm thinking this man is talking about grace and the beauty of grace and, 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 and praise while he has nothing. Yeah. And it, I just realized that there is um, there is a level of dignity and humanity on the streets that most of us just don't recognize. Mm. And I began to imagine what it would mean to be on the street, not because of circumstances, but because one chose to. Mm. Mm. One just was sick of the rat race. I'm sick of the materiality. I'm sick of, of, of all of this um, excess in America. I'm sick of trading my life force for labor. Mm. I just want to be a human being in the world. And so I began to imagine that story. Yeah. It's interesting. You use the word materiality talking about listen to the lambs and also about the coming. Mm -hmm. And I wonder mm -hmm. if those two stories connect for you. They do, because I think the thing that has destroyed so much of the moral integrity of America and has diverted the eyes and, and the psyche of so many black people in America is our wish, our longing for, our hope for, our working for, our dying for excess. Mm. Excess is really, and unfortunately in America, excess is the measure of success. Yeah. Yeah. If people don't have excess, we think something's wrong with them. We think they should work a little harder. Um, and I, I'm really convinced that having excess is the thing that really destroys our spiritual sensibilities. Daniel Omotosha Black on AIJCast. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment, but first, a quick word. As always, I invite you to visit the AIJCast website, AIJCast.com, where you will find information about our artists, including their news, events, and products. In this time of COVID-19, we are doing our best to keep our calendar up to date with all of the live streaming events that our artists are hosting. With many live events canceled, this is a critical time for so many of our artists. And so I do encourage you to visit the shop section of our website, which gives you a number of links to support their art. And we are also grateful for the ways that you support us in this podcast. 
You can find links to all of these things and more at our website, AIJCast.com. And now back to more of our conversation with Dr. Daniel Omotosho Black. The phrase I've heard, and I don't think it's true, but I'll repeat it just because we've heard it so much, is coronavirus is the great equalizer. Mm. And what that misses is the fact that before this crisis hit, there have been gaps in American identity since its inception. Sure. Race, gender, economic, you name it. Sure. And so one of the reasons that that Listen to the Lambs hit me at this particular time is I have been, my attention is continually drawn to folk who were already kind of living in a marginalized, desperate crisis, coronavirus-like time before we were even talking about coronavirus, people on the street right. in particular. And I wonder, I wonder what your sense of that is, uh, of what what's new about coronavirus? What does it illuminate for us that we don't necessarily pay attention to? I think the only thing I'd say that I'm clearest about, I have some theories of other things, but the thing I feel like I'm clearest about is that the coronavirus is illuminating how far we'll go to nurture and love each other if we can't do it in person. Oh, wow. Yeah, like like if you really love a person, the coronavirus is asking, find another avenue to adore them. Mm, that's yeah. good. And so for me, that's what's been clearest. How do you how do you maintain your heart? How do you maintain community if you cannot do it in person? If you can't be together in person, yeah. And as I reflect on the titles of the books we talked about, I hear, and let me know if I'm projecting here, but I hear theology. Oh, for sure. In for those sure. titles, whether it's explicit or implicit. Yes, okay. it's definitely theology. In fact, the coming itself is a spiritual manifesto in many ways. It's the ways in which these African people wrestled with God, wrestled with spirit, wrestled with their own belief system. Because in instances like this, God, where are you? We believe in you as a deliverer. Then why won't you come? Right. Right. And then beginning to wrestle with, well, if God won't come, then there must be a lesson in this Mm. that God sanctions. There must be something that God wants us to get from this. You know, so it's absolutely a theology in every way. It's a theology. And it's one by the end of the book that's not resolved, but it's certainly explored. Is that true in all of your novels? I think definitely so. And and there are a few readers who say absolutely so. Mm. Mm. Because I'm always interested both in human beingness, but I'm also interested in the way humans interact with the invisible. Mm. That's that is and how and always has been a very intriguing notion for me. How how what we don't see shapes and molds what we do see. So you're a full professor of African American studies at Clark Atlanta University. Correct. Um, and particularly aware that you are the founder of the Ndugu Nzinga Rites of Passage Nation here in Atlanta. Yes. Um, and that the connections that I'm assuming those must have to scholarship, whether in your field or beyond it. Certainly. Would you tell us about the Rites of Passage Nation? Sure. How it came to be, what sure. it looks like? Sure. I, I wrote my dissertation on ancient initiation practices in pre-colonial West Africa. Mm. I was interested about this thing called a rites of passage process or, or the process of initiation. I was intrigued by that in graduate school because I realized in many West African places, they didn't have schools as we know it here in the West. 
but they did have intellectual uh, uh, learning processes. And one of those was this thing called rites of passage. And so once I finished that research, I was very interested in whether or not that ancient model or that ancient paradigm might work in contemporary America. Hmm. And so when I came to Clark Atlanta University then uh, in 1993, I began this process called Indugu and Nzinga, this this initiation process, because I wanted to see if it, if it could have the same kind of transformative impact on black kids here that it had had on African kids there. Mm. And it has been probably the most glorious thing that my eyes and my spirit uh, have has ever beheld. Mm. Um, the transformation of these young people of course, it's, it's, it's in its 26th year, 27th wow. year, something like that now. Um, the spiritual transformation, the academic transformation, the healing work we do, the, the work we do to love each other, the work we do to break down the barriers against what it would mean to love each other, the work we do to get rid of uh, a toxic masculinity while holding on to the beauty of masculinity, mm. the work we do to, to embrace what it means uh, for people to not just be queer, but to understand spiritually why being queer is actually an advantage to the rest of the world. Mm. Right. The work we do to try to dismantle sexism while we're in the middle of our own sexist ideology, but still being committed to its dismantling. Nonetheless, the work we do uh, to love each other who come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of issues. Um, it is the most remarkable community of people I have ever ever beheld. Let's not leave that hanging. You said something powerful. I want to hear more about this. You talked about queerness as an advantage. Oh, absolutely. See, in Ndugan Nzinga, we don't take anybody's construction as a, as, a, as a natural or an inherent deficit. However you come, you were supposed to come that way. We start with that assumption in Ndugan Nzinga. And in fact, where we press to is not only were you supposed to come that way, we press to figure out why you were supposed to come that way and what we're supposed to get from you having come that way. Right. So we're always asking the question of uh, how will this person's being right make us better? Right. I'm certainly a queer individual myself also. And the point here ultimately, right, the point here ultimately is what is it that you're supposed to bring from the spirit realm to this realm. Mm. And whatever that thing is, the being you have was made to carry that destiny, mm. was made to carry that purpose. If you are a healer, you have the body of a healer. It's not just, it's, it's not just an idea. Your very, your very being, your very construction is built for the art of healing. And we believe that about everything, about every gift. If you're a warrior, you, you come in the form of a warrior, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it's really a truly, truly remarkable, remarkable community. In fact, some of the difficulty of Indugan and Zynga is that I think we're really, really many years ahead of the general social um, context in which we live. Mm. But that has made it difficult because some of the things we want to do, some even the structures, we, we have to fight everyday structures in order to do this project, in order to do this idea. Because in many instances, the world doesn't agree and it's not going to for a while, mm. but we still believe in it. And again, it's it's been some of the most remarkable growth 
that I have ever, ever known. Um, our graduation rate is probably 94, 95%. Mm. If a person is in a Dugan and a Zynga, it is, they are really likely to finish school. Wow. Wow. Because, because we believe in knowledge, but it's because also we believe in a principle called discipline, right? So we press this, right? Um, but also, we've never sent anybody to jail in 25 years from our community. Nobody has been shot or stabbed in Nduga and Zynga in 27 years, and it's a community full of nothing but black people, mm-hmm. men and women. Um, and, and these things might seem trivial, but the truth of the matter is they're exceptional. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, and and we learn to love that which we don't prefer. That's a hard thing. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. But but the reason that's important is because if we're not careful, preference is the thing that's absolutely limiting and destroying most people on the planet. Because what we prefer includes things that will kill us. Yeah. Absolutely. I love the thread that has run through our entire conversation that I have heard is this holistic, for lack of a better word, sense of body and spirit or of idea and action. Absolutely. Of gift and manifestation and that to me just is a deeply, you know, as a person who claims a sense of faith as a Christian, it's a deeply incarnational thing for me, this fleshiness of holiness. And I'm really grateful for you to illuminate that for us today. Thank you. Absolutely. This has been tons that. of fun. Dr. Black, if you had a charge for people who were listening, maybe it's a word of wisdom that you often share. Maybe it's something that our conversation has sparked today. What would it be? I would say this thing right here. I would urge everybody to press themselves to the place where you are unafraid of your own truth. To get yourself to the place where you realize that no human being has more agency than you. There is no one to fear. There is no one to cower before. There's no one to be afraid of. To know your own truth and to live it to be clear that if God knows your truth and God is truth, of course God knows your truth, then there's no one else to fear. Dr. Daniel Omotosha Black, thank you for being on AIJCast. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you for having me. Daniel Omotosha Black on AIJCast. You can find him online at his website, danieloblack.com. On our next episode, pastor and artist Yanni Davis. AIJCast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only do what we do because of your support. So please do take just a moment, go to our website, AIJCast.com, and click on the link that says support. And we do love to interact with you on social media. We are there on a number of platforms where our handle is AIJCast. Our theme song is written and recorded by the band Marred Fame. Photography support comes from Ely at eleyphoto.com. And we've just recently posted a narrative photo shoot and collaboration between Ely and illustrator Rachel Eleanor. You can find a link to this cool project on our website. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the dastardly Al Mudif. Al has the simple advice when faced with road construction. Find another avenue. And I'm your host, Marthane Sanders, encouraging you to go and create some beauty of your own. Peace! Peace!